easily one of the most maligned women in all of English history is Margaret of Anjou, Queen of England, known to history, thanks to Shakespeare, as the She-Wolf of France. She was a formidable, courageous and impressive force of nature who via her marriage to possibly England's most inept king, Henry VI, became a central figure in what we would now call the Wars of the Roses. It was owing to her husband's severe bouts of mental illness that Margaret was able to govern England almost in her own right, but in a society as patriarchal as 15th century England, she soon faced stiff competition from senior noblemen, most significantly Richard, third Duke of York, the father of the later kings, Edward IV and Richard III. But who was Margaret of Anjou? What was her early life like? How did she come to be married to the English king? And why, even now, is she viewed in such a negative light? Welcome back to the Tudor Chess Podcast, episode 27, Margaret of Anjou, the She-Wolf of France. ago I released an episode all about Elizabeth Woodville and so it occurred to me that it was only fair to follow up with her predecessor and rival. Like a lot of people I came to Margaret of Anjou's story later than I did the Tudors and I must admit that I was first properly exposed to Margaret via the television series The White Queen which paints a less than favourable portrait of Margaret who is referred to as the Bad Queen from the very beginning. After watching the series, I became significantly more interested in the Plantagenets and went away to learn a lot more about the fascinating dynasty that came before the Tudors. Rather like Anne Boleyn, Queen Mary I and Queen Elizabeth I, I found myself drawn to the powerful female figures from the Plantagenet story, with Margaret of Anjou prominent among their number. I was determined to find out more about Margaret after watching The White Queen. I wanted to know why she was viewed as the Bad Queen. What had she done that was so awful? Well, ultimately, what I learnt is that she hadn't. At least she behaved no differently than all of the men around her. But therein is the crux of the issue. Margaret was a woman in a world which entirely believed in male superiority. We also have very little knowledge of certain aspects of Margaret's life, in particular, what she looked like. The only description of her appearance of note states that she was described as beautiful, but somewhat dark. Now, whether that means she had dark hair or that she had a swarthy complexion, we can only guess at. There is no detailed portrait of Margaret in existence. The most well-known image of her is a rather crude drawing within a manuscript presented to her by John Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury. If the image is semi-accurate, then Margaret had long blonde hair, but beyond that, the image isn't really telling us a huge amount about what she truly looked like. So who was she, and where did she come from? She was born on the 23rd of March, 1430, at Ponte Mouzon in Lorraine, a piece of land which made up part of the Holy Roman Empire, but operated with semi-independence. Her father, René, ruled a cadet branch of the French kings, known as the House of Valois-Anjou, which gave her father the title of the King of Naples. Her mother was Isabella, Duchess of Lorraine. 
She had five brothers and four sisters, as well as three half-siblings from her father's relationships with mistresses. Her father, popularly known as Good King René, was Duke of Anjou and in addition to Naples, was technically King of Sicily and Jerusalem. And the word technically is important here, because he didn't actually rule over these lands, leading to his description as being a man of many crowns, but no kingdoms. Margaret was baptised at Toul in Lorraine and spent her early years at the castle of Tarascon in Provence and in the old palace at Capua near Naples in the Kingdom of Sicily. In her childhood, Margaret was known as Le Petite Creature and was educated by her mother. It was in Margaret's early years that she received prominent exposure to several powerful women who had helped to mould the woman that she would become in later years. Women who exercised power in politics, war and administration as regents and queen lieutenants. Her mother, Isabella of Lorraine, fought wars on behalf of her husband whilst he was imprisoned between 1431 and 1436 by the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good, and ruled the Duchy of Lorraine in her own right. Her paternal grandmother, Yolande of Aragon, ruled the Duchy of Anjou as regent for her son whilst Margaret was a child, repelling an English military presence and supporting the disinherited Dauphin. It isn't too difficult to see that exposure to such formidable women would help Margaret realise that women could rule just as, if not more effectively than men, but equally this could and would prove to be part of her problem, for she married into England, where attitudes towards female authority were at this stage much more conservative than those in other parts of Western Europe. At the age of 15, Margaret was given in marriage to the 23-year-old King Henry VI of England a marriage which sought to provide peace and unity between England and its old enemy, following the extremely long and bloody 100 Years' War. Margaret met with English envoys at Tours on the 4th of May 1444 to discuss her marriage, and 20 days later, on the 24th of May, she was formally betrothed to Henry by proxy. The marriage was negotiated principally by William de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk, and the settlement included a remarkably small dowry of 20,000 francs and the unrealised claim via Margaret's mother to the territories of Majorca and Menorca, which had been occupied for centuries by the Crown of Aragon. Margaret arrived into England on the 9th of April 1445 and travelled to London accompanied by various lords and courtiers. She reached London towards the end of May, where she was met by the mayor and aldermen of the city. An interesting tidbit of info from this time is that the predicted turnout for her arrival and the procession that went with it was expected to be so vast that inspections of roofs and balconies was ordered to ensure that they were safe, with the belief that many would clamber onto them in the hopes of getting a better view. And I love facts like this. It's kind of no different to getting on someone's shoulders at Glastonbury and shows how little we've changed over time when it comes to wanting to see a good show. Margaret's ceremonial progress through the City of London lasted for two days, with the intervening night spent by custom at the Tower of London. It was accompanied by eight theatrical pageants. Five of these were pageants concerned with the peace with France, whilst three spoke to her spiritual role as a redeemer and intercessor. On the 23rd of April 1445, Margaret married King Henry VI at Titchfield Abbey in Hampshire. She was then crowned Queen of England on the 30th of May 1445 at Westminster Abbey by John Stafford, Archbishop of Canterbury. Those who had anticipated the future return of English claims to French territory believed that she already understood her duty to protect the interests of the crown fervently. 
the wedding and her transport were very expensive, estimated by some historians at more than £5,000, or roughly £3.5 million by modern standards. Although we do not have a record of exactly what Margaret thought of her husband, we can surmise that she may have been disappointed or perhaps anxious about what lay ahead. Henry VI was timid and passive. Some have even called him simple-minded, being described as disastrously ill-suited for the business of ruling by the standards of the time. Henry VI has the distinction of being the youngest king to inherit the throne in English history, for he came to it at the age of just nine months. As such, his reign was almost entirely governed by other people, who naturally had their own agendas at play. It is unsurprising that he therefore grew into a man entirely dependent on the advice of others, which also made him the opposite of what people looked for in a medieval king, especially as his father, Henry V, was so fondly remembered as the victor of Agincourt. He was, in short, the total opposite in temperament to his teenage queen, who Dr Helen Caster, her biographer, describes as having an innate sense of her own majesty. Margaret was granted 10,000 marks per annum as the new Queen of England by Parliament in March 1446, and estates worth a further £2,000 per annum were settled on her from the Duchy of Lancaster. This extensive annual income enabled Margaret to become a considerable economic power in England, with vast amounts of land and a hugely prominent patron at the royal court. Shortly after Margaret's coronation, her father re-entered negotiations with the English crown in an attempt to barter a lifetime's alliance and a 20-year truce in exchange for the English-held territory of Maine going into Anjou's hands, and by extension, Henry VI's agreement to abandon his claims over Anjou. Ultimately, the agreement ended without an alliance with Anjou, but did include the loss of Maine. The loss of Maine was regarded as a betrayal and was deeply unpopular with the English public, and this would be the first major stick with which they would use to beat Margaret's reputation, given her French origins and that the lands had fallen into her father's hands. Although we view history, quite naturally I suppose, with hindsight and focus on Henry VI's later mental breakdowns, whilst he was never a particularly effective monarch, his marriage to Margaret of Anjou was clearly a happy one, which can be evidenced by the fact that in the early years of their marriage, prior to Henry's illness, Margaret and Henry spent significant proportions of their time together by choice. They shared an interest in education and culture and were committed to establishing new bodies of education. For example, in March 1448, Margaret was granted licence to found Queen's College, Cambridge. Margaret's surviving letters also tell us that she performed the traditional duties expected of a queen, these being the acts of intercession, mediation and intervention in matters in which she was asked to act, such as the arranging of marriages, the return of wrongfully taken property, the distribution of arms and so on. These were all things which, as I say, were fully traditional behaviours of a 15th century queen, and tells us that for large portions of her time as queen that she behaved in a manner commensurate to what was expected of her. Whilst Margaret performed all of these queenly duties with aplomb, it took some time for her to perform the most important role of a queen consort of the time, the production of healthy children. Although it's possible that there were earlier pregnancies that ended in miscarriages that were not recorded, this seems unlikely, and so we should probably conclude that when she did fall pregnant, seven years into her marriage to the king, that this was her first pregnancy, and it would also turn out to be her last. 
As I have noted, her husband was not considered to be a good king. He was weak, he was prone to severe bouts of mental illness, and he was highly emotional. It was known that he would cry, for example, when people swore in his presence, and he became deeply embarrassed by any type of bawdy joke or story. Without wanting to label Henry VI from a distance of over 500 years, it seems logical to me that he was, to use modern parlance, frigid and that the length of time it took for the queen to fall pregnant was not by her inability to fall pregnant, but by her husband's own personality. When she did finally give birth to a son, Edward, it had taken so long for her to fall pregnant that it had given credence to theories that the child was not the king's, but instead either the Duke of Somerset's or even a changeling snatched from a willing family. At one point, the gossip rose to such a level that Margaret found it necessary to send a formal letter to the City of London declaring that her son was rightfully born by descent of the blood royal. Margaret would have further major stress throughout her pregnancy when disaster struck just two months before giving birth when her husband suffered a complete mental breakdown. This was started when news reached England that much of the French territories owned by the English crown had been lost. Most significantly was Gascony, which had been held by the English crown for over 300 years. Following its loss, the king entered into a catatonic state for over 18 months, being completely unable to do anything for himself. Margaret gave birth to their child in October 1453, and shortly after she presented their baby son to the king, but it did nothing to alter his vegetative state. During the king's infirmity, a protector of the realm had to be named to ensure the governance of the kingdom would continue. By virtue of the position in which she found herself, Margaret stepped forward and was forced into the centre of the political arena. She put forward a bid that she herself should be regent, and with hindsight, it's very easy to see why Margaret considered herself to be the right choice. She had succeeded in giving birth to a son, and as I discussed earlier, had seen throughout her childhood several occasions of strong and powerful women stepping up in moments of crisis. But this bid for the protectorship is what ultimately put her on a collision course with the powerful and misogynistic men of her husband's court. We should therefore tread carefully when accepting the belief that she was a cold and ruthless she-wolf who sought power and political advantage for both herself and her court faction, but instead consider that she was behaving in a way that felt entirely natural to her and ultimately made sense. However, that mindset is easy for us now, but is undoubtedly applying a modern view onto a situation that was seen very differently in the 15th century. She may have been queen, and she may have had lots of experience in seeing women step up, but that would not overhaul the entire conventions of the time in England, and is what led to Margaret becoming increasingly unpopular with the English nobility. Her bid for the regency failed, and instead this honour was given to Richard, third Duke of York, who was second in line to the throne after the infant prince was a natural, albeit dangerous, choice. Although disappointed by her lack of appointment to the protectorship, Margaret did not stew and instead retired to live in lavish state at Greenwich Palace, where she busily occupied herself with the care of her young son. It was only when she felt that the Duke of York was exceeding his powers as Lord Protector and that this could have implications for her son's future that she re-entered the fray. It is reasonable to assume that Margaret would have viewed the Duke of York as a very serious threat to her son's position, but 
prior to that, there does not appear to have been a long-standing feud between the two. Things did, of course, change after York's appointment, in large part owing to York imprisoning his long-term enemy and Margaret's ally, Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, in the Tower of London. Things all changed, however, when, on Christmas Day, 1455, the king suddenly awoke from his catatonia and returned to his senses, such as they were. The Duke of York was forced to resign his protectorate, which allowed Margaret to regain a sense of political authority within the English court. She and the young Prince Edward departed London to take up residence at Kenilworth, where they were then joined by the King. The Duke of Somerset was released from prison, and thanks to his and Margaret's influence, the Duke of York's power became increasingly minimised. Unsurprisingly, this did not go down well with York and would lead to the First Battle of St Albans, a battle which is generally accepted to be the start of the Wars of the Roses. Somerset was killed and York took possession of the king. In 1458, a reconciliation between the Yorkists and the Lancastrians was sought by King Henry, which became known as the Love Day where the Queen was to walk with her enemy York hand in hand in a procession through the streets of London. Whilst outwardly a display of unity between the two greatest houses in the country, it was all pretense. While Margaret was attempting to raise further support for the Lancastrian cause in Scotland, her principal commander, Henry Beaufort, 3rd Duke of Somerset, the son of Edmund Beaufort, who had died at the Battle of St Albans, gained a major victory for her at the Battle of Wakefield on the 30th of December 1460, in which he defeated the armies of the Duke of York and the Earl of Salisbury. The Duke of York was beheaded, and then a paper crown was nailed onto his head as a sign of his pretense to wear the crown of England. It was then displayed on the gates of Micklegate Bar at the entrance to the city of York. Due to Shakespeare's depiction of Margaret, the death of York and his son Edmund are repeatedly placed at her feet, but she was in Scotland at the time of the battle, and therefore it's impossible that it was her who ordered their execution. Next was the Second Battle of St Albans, at which she was present on the 17th of February 1461. The battle was a resounding victory for the Lancastrian army and resulted in Margaret ordering the execution of two Yorkist prisoners of war, William Bonville, 1st Baron Bonville, and Sir Thomas Kyral. That she chose to execute these two men is definitely one of her more shocking acts and has also been seen as proof of her son's innate cruelty. Both men had kept watch over King Henry whilst he was a prisoner to the Earl of Warwick, with their duty to keep him very much out of harm's way. Accordingly, when the king was liberated, he had promised the two knights immunity, which Margaret chose to ignore. It is believed that during their trial, she turned to Prince Edward and said, Fair son, what death shall these knights die? To which the young prince replied that their heads should be cut off, despite the king's pleas for mercy. That Margaret would so wantonly ignore the pleas of the king tells us much about how their relationship was now operating, and that it was Margaret who was ultimately calling the shots. The Lancastrian victory over Yorkist rule was to be short-lived, for within weeks of the Duke of York's execution, a more dangerous enemy sooner emerged, his eldest son, Edward, Earl of March. At 18, tall, strapping and famously handsome, he was built in the mould of exactly what England looked for in its kings. He was addicted to women, he was gregarious, jovial, strategic and ruthless. He was, in short, the antithesis of Henry VI. Leading a considerable army, backed by his cousin the Earl of Warwick, 
Edward delivered a crushing defeat over the royal forces at the Battle of Towton on the 29th of March 1461. Henry VI was deposed, with Edward proclaiming himself King Edward IV. Margaret was determined to win back her son's inheritance and fled with him into Wales and later into Scotland. In 1462, Margaret and her son departed for France, which given her close ties to the French royal family was a natural place for her to turn when she needed aid. A meeting with the French king, Louis XI, went well, in which Margaret promised to hand Calais over to French control in exchange for a large loan of 20,000 francs. It was at the French king's instigation that Margaret was convinced into an unlikely alliance with none other than Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, the very man who had helped place Edward IV on the throne, but had since fallen out with his former friend as a result of Edward's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville and was now seeking revenge for the loss of his political influence. At their meeting, she agreed to a suggestive marriage alliance between her one and only child, Edward of Lancaster, to Warwick's younger daughter, Anne. Margaret of Anjou accepted this, I believe, as purely a means to an end, namely the removal of King Edward IV from her husband's throne, which would then in turn go to her son in time. She was open in her dislike and distrust of Warwick, and upon meeting him to discuss the negotiations, made him remain on his knees for 20 minutes before allowing him to so much as speak. She was, however, ultimately backed into a corner, and knew without the support of Warwick that there was little hope of her and her son ever returning safely to England. The marriage went ahead, and also achieved its key ambition. King Edward IV fled the country, opening up the throne for the return of its predecessor, Henry VI. Margaret had insisted that Warwick return to England to prove himself before she followed. He did so, restoring Henry VI briefly to the throne on the 3rd of October 1470. Safe in the knowledge that her husband was restored to the throne, she set sail for England, but by the time that Margaret, her son and her daughter-in-law Anne were ready to follow Warwick back to England, the tables had already turned once again in favour of the Yorkists, with the Earl of Warwick defeated and killed by the returning Edward IV in the Battle of Barnet on the 14th of April 1471. Margaret was forced to lead her own army at the Battle of Tewkesbury on the 4th of May 1471, at which the Lancastrian forces were defeated and her 17-year-old son, Edward of Westminster, was killed. It had been his first and last experience of battle. The circumstances of Edward's death have never been made completely clear. It's not known, for example, if he died actually in the fighting or if he was executed later by the Duke of Clarence. In Shakespeare's plays, we see Richard later, Richard III, kill him. We can't say for sure. Over the previous 10 years, Margaret had gained a reputation for aggression and ruthlessness. But following her defeat at Tewkesbury and the death of her only son, her spirit was completely broken. After this, she was taken captive by William Stanley at the end of the battle and was imprisoned by the order of King Edward IV. She was first sent to Wallingford Castle and was then transferred to the more secure Tower of London. Henry VI was also imprisoned in the Tower in the wake of Tewkesbury and he died there on the night of the 21st of May. The cause of his death is unknown, though few doubt that he was killed on the orders of the reinstated Edward IV. In fact, the man who carried out the act of killing the old king may very well have been Edward IV's younger brother Richard, later Richard III, for he was at the tower the night the old king, Henry VI, mysteriously died. 
1472, Margaret was placed in the custody of her former lady-in-waiting, Alice Chaucer, Duchess of Suffolk, where she remained until ransomed by Louis XI of France in 1475. After returning to her native France, she eked out a pitiable existence, living as a poor relation of the king. Seven years after landing in France, she died, impoverished in the castle of Dompierre-sur-Loire near Anjou on the 25th of August 1482 at the age of 52. She was entombed next to her parents in Angers Cathedral, but her remains were shockingly removed and scattered by those no-good revolutionaries who ransacked the cathedral during the French Revolution. Since her death, Margaret has been on the receiving end of some of the harshest criticism from both contemporary commentators and later historians who characterise her as an almost satanic monster who clawed her way through England, brutally executing people with glee. But frankly, the more I've got to know her story, the less and less I can be convinced that these conclusions are justified. Her decision to execute the two men pardoned by her husband is definitely a low point, but this is the only thing that I can see which in any way defines a level of cruelty in her. All of her other behaviour was entirely moulded and defined by the times and the situations in which she found herself. She was ultimately forced by political circumstance and the huge ineptitude of her husband to take on a much more active role in politics in order to protect both her and her son's positions. But it was this that was deemed unnatural because she was a woman. To try and take on the duties of a regent and her desire for that role was seen as vile, it was seen as reprehensible by the people of the time. And it was said that her intentions towards her adopted country were hostile and destructive. Ever since, her story has been twisted to fit this narrative. She has, in short, been the victim of history written by the victors, whose self-interest necessitated the need for her to be portrayed as the she-wolf that she is so closely associated with even now. Of course, a huge factor in helping to destroy Margaret's reputation was the work of William Shakespeare, who wrote of Margaret as the she-wolf, worse than wolves of France, whose tongue had more poisons than an adder's tooth. This dark reputation has also made its way into more modern retellings of the period, most notably as I referenced at the start of the episode in the work of Philippa Gregory, particularly in The White Queen and the television series based on it. But what the series lacks, or I suppose fails to address, is why Margaret is deemed as the bad queen. As an audience, we're told she's the bad queen, and that's that. We don't really get to understand what it is that she's supposed to have done, only that we shouldn't like her, and that she must be viewed negatively against the beautiful and the perfect Elizabeth Woodville, which greatly undercuts Margaret's story and the reasons as to why she behaved as she did. The more I've studied her story, the more fascinating she's become, and the more I feel like she's the victim of hugely unjustified slander. Her personality feels quite similar to the likes of Anne Boleyn, or possibly Catherine of Aragon, or Catherine Parr, both of whom we must remember did stellar jobs as regents of England when Henry VIII was overseas. I think it's high time that we examined Margaret's story more closely, and recognised her for what she was. A remarkable woman who dared to behave in a way deemed inappropriate to her time, and who has ever since been judged for it, when in reality, she was laying the foundations for later generations of queen consorts and was ultimately fighting for her husband and her son's throne, something any mother in such a position would surely have chosen to do. 
And so that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Tomorrow on my Patreon account, the second in my Historian Unwrapped episodes lands, and in this one I'm chatting to the amazing Dr Sarah Morris, the creator of the hugely popular Tudor Travel Guide, who also happens to be my business partner as the co-director of our historic tour company, Simply Tudor Tours. To sign up for this and all other benefits, just head to patreon.com forward slash the Tudor Chest. Thank you again, and speak soon. 